Hello and welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly Podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of the Crown on the Application of Right and Resilient Energy Sevendale Limited and Forest of Dean District Council. The citation for this case is 2019 UKSC 53. And this case that we are looking at this week is all about planning permission and the sort of things that are taken into account when a local authority comes to a decision about a planning application. The application in question is one of those that was always going to cause some controversy in a local community. In the small village of Tiddenham in Gloucestershire, the company, Resilient Energy, wanted to adapt some land that had been used for farming to build a wind turbine instead. While wind turbines are obviously a great source of renewable energy, they do also present an eyesore for the local population. In order to sweeten the deal somewhat, Resilient made it clear in their application that the wind turbine would be built and run by a community benefit society, and that furthermore each year a donation would be made to a local community fund. The local council considered this as well as a number of other factors when it decided to grant the application, to the extent that permission was actually conditional on the annual donation and the close collaboration with the Community Benefits Society. That decision linked in with government policy at the time which encouraged wind turbine projects that were community-led. Of course that granting of planning permission was not the end of things else there wouldn't be much of an episode for us today. Instead, it was opposed by Mr Wright, who is the respondent in this case. The basis for his doing so lies in section 70, subsection 2 of the Town and Country Planning Act 1990, and section 38, subsection 6 of the Planning and Compulsory Purchase Act 2004. Both of these provisions make reference to authorities having to take into account, quote, material considerations, end quote, when coming to their decision, and the argument from Wright was that the donation did not represent a material consideration, and so the council had acted unlawfully by taking it into account. He was successful at first instance and then again at the Court of Appeal, before Resilient Energy and the council appealed to the Supreme Court, which is where we pick the proceedings up. The justices, unsurprisingly, began with this central idea of material considerations and sought to define it. After all, in a very broad sense, anything that has any sort of practical consequence attached to it could be said to be a material consideration. Of course, that wouldn't be very satisfactory and would render the planning legislation meaningless, so the considerations must instead be material to the proposed change of use that is in the application. This fits in with the overall scheme that is put forth in the Town and Country Planning Act 1990 and the Planning and Compulsory Purchase Act 2004. In reality, the definition has to be even more precise though, and this is where we can turn to existing case law for guidance. The leading authority in this area is still from 1981, and is the House of Lords case of Newbury District Council and Secretary of State for the Environment. This case sets out the three requirements for any sort of conditions imposed on planning consents. Firstly, the condition has to be there for a planning purpose and not for any ulterior motive. Secondly, it must fairly and reasonably relate to the development for which the permission is being given. And thirdly, it must be reasonable. 
Now, it does have to be said that the imposition of conditions to planning permission is not quite the exact same thing as the material considerations taken into account when deciding whether to grant the application in the first place. However, the Supreme Court got around this by stating that if an authority can impose conditions, then that condition could also be a material factor at the application stage. In other words, there is significant overlap between the two concepts in this context. Alongside this case, one of the other key principles that Lord Sales referred to in his lead judgment was that planning permission is not something that can either be bought or sold. Naturally, this is important not only from the perspective of good public administration, but it also serves to protect landowners and the public interest by ensuring that planning permission is granted for the right reasons. In that way, it is also linked to the centrality of material considerations, because any sort of side benefit for the local authority would not be related to the granting of a planning application based on the actual merits of the development, and therefore would not constitute a material consideration under the law. All of this brings us back round to the question of whether the donation and involvement of the Community Benefit Society is a material consideration that can be legitimately taken into account when granting the planning application to build the wind turbine on agricultural land. Thinking back to that first requirement in Newbury, that there has to be a planning purpose and no other motive, the argument of the council and resilient energy has to fail because the benefit is not related to the proposed development and instead represents a benefit to the wider community as a whole. Moving on to the second point in Newbury, that the consideration must relate to the development, the donation also fails to satisfy this criteria as well, as it does not affect the use of the land and was instead an incentive for the council to grant planning permission, something that itself breaches the principle that planning permission cannot be bought and sold. The final point that was made by the Supreme Court was that the policy of the government which encourages such local community-based schemes does not fundamentally alter what is and is not a material consideration for an authority to take into account. Indeed, the only impact that this would ever have would be under the third part of the Newbury criteria, which requires the authority to act in a reasonable manner. Now, when it comes to considering this case, I think that one of the most interesting things is the reliance that is placed on the decision in Newbury, which, as a reminder, is from 1981. Although it is a House of Lords decision that is still held in high regard, it seems appropriate that after 40 years, the Supreme Court has some responsibility to at least question whether the criteria are still relevant, and if they should still be applied in the same way. As we hinted at during the episode itself, the definition of a material consideration can potentially be very narrow or very wide, and this gives the Supreme Court a lot of scope to play with. Through Newbury, the courts have adopted an approach that focuses on two key things, that the consideration is reasonable and that it is related to the planning application. This has proven to be sensible because it ensures that authorities and judges only look to the matter directly in front of them and are not enticed or distracted by extraneous factors. Furthermore, as we have seen in this case, those criteria ensure that planning permission cannot be bought or sold, and thus the whole process is clear from even low-level corruption or bribery. 
However, it does also mean that important factors that might not have direct relevance are missed. For example, in this case that we've been looking at today, there was the potential financial contribution to the local community fund. This might have appeared as relevant to the average person on the street, but could not actually be taken into account because of the strict Newbury criteria. It is a good thing that planning permission cannot be bought or sold, but when the financial benefit of a project is directed in part towards the local community, is that really such a dreadful thing that ought to be ignored entirely? Opening up the definition of a material consideration would undoubtedly leave some uncertainty in the law, and it would take the case law some time to catch up as new lines are drawn. Nevertheless, in the long term, such an adaptation of the Newbury test would allow the law to be more flexible and meet the challenges of planning law in the 21st century head on. Well, thank you very much for tuning into this episode, and thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. If you do get a chance, remember to check out my website at uklawweekly.com. You'll find links to past episodes and other videos that I've published on YouTube, and hopefully some interesting links as well for you to look at there. I'll be back with another case next week, but for now, bye!